Welcome to the James Quandall Show, the space where I have conversations with the world's experts and share how you can live your life to the fullest and build the life of your dreams. Today's guest is Jordan Rayner, the best-selling author of multiple books I personally enjoyed, including Call to Create and Redeeming Your Time. Jordan's newest book is titled The Word Before Work. During this episode, we discuss why Jordan enjoys reading autobiographies from individuals that lived hundreds of years ago, if fame and fortune should be an indicator or motivator for how we should live, why Jordan is planning to be completely off social media before the end of the year, how he believes following political news is quicksand, and how when he worked in politics, it made him an angry and bitter person. Jordan explains how we all benefit from one true day off each week, where we realize our value and worth just by existing and not by producing. In Jordan's home, they celebrate the Sabbath by not doing anything they feel they have to do, but only doing what they feel they get to do. Finally, we discuss how Jordan feels true cultural change starts on the ground, in the hearts and minds of the citizens. We discussed all of this and so much more during our conversation, so please sit back and enjoy the show. And send me a message with your thoughts, at James Quandall on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe or follow and share this episode with a friend. So before we were recording, I was complimenting Jordan on his newest book, The Word Before Work. And we're going to get into a lot of stuff, not just the book, so hang tight. But what I loved about the book is I've read a lot of devotional books. I've read a lot of books that were kind of the daily kind of pieces and I didn't like very many of them and I kind of have a distaste for them but here's what I liked about this one it's actually super simple it's like okay wow I really could read this in two minutes in the morning and then reflect on it the rest of the day and I don't know if that was your intention but it worked it was 100% my intention I don't got I don't have time to you know wade through 15 minutes of stuff that doesn't apply to my day James, right? Like, yeah, I, I want to make this super simple for readers to be able to have some inspiration at the beginning of their day, have one simple thing they can think about and dwell on within the crevices of that day that can transform their perspective that doesn't require a whole lot of uh, thinking or journaling. It's just two minutes of content that stays with you throughout the rest of the day. And what I like about it is I just went through binging, probably like you in the West Wing, all your books. <laughs> and I read the first month of the devotional, which I know is not how they're supposed to be applied, but I really wanted to get a feel for it before we talked. But I'm going to go back and redo the whole thing from the beginning and actually follow it. Uh, but what I was really neat was the connections to the other books. And so if you read one and you're like, hey, this is a topic I really enjoy and I want to know more about. Well, guess what? There's three or four other books you can go as deep as you want to in or your podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a greatest hits of sorts, this uh, this devotional book. And then there's the big books that go deeper into some of these topics. Yeah. But how did you initially even realize you wanted to be an author? Because being an entrepreneur, building businesses, helping other people build their business, being an author isn't necessarily just like a, it's a lot harder thing. I mean, it's completely different yeah. in a way. Yeah, it's a lot different in a lot of ways, but I also think the similarities to building a business, uh, I come from a tech uh, startup world. It's actually pretty similar to 
building an author brand and a brand around content, the difference is the type of product, right? The difference is software versus content, right? But at the end of the day, to be a great entrepreneur, to be a great author, it's all the same core skill set. It's identifying a gap in a market, right? A problem a customer has, designing a solution to that problem and putting in systems to enable that solution to be delivered in a really scalable way, right? And that's true of SaaS software. It's true of, uh, it's true of books. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I, I really think about myself. I don't even know if author is the right word. I think of it more as a content entrepreneur, really listening to the market and talking to people, listening to customers, trying to have great empathy, understanding the pain points, going out and doing all the research, and then coming to them with a solution. Uh, with a product, and in, in, in this case, a book uh, that helps them simply solve that problem. I believe that. And I know that's what you actually did because I listened to an episode on your show with your agent. Yeah. And when you wrote your first proposal, you didn't yeah. have an audience. No, none. And that's unheard of usually to get a book deal in that type of world which yeah. shows you had the business acumen. So it transferred really well, the entrepreneurial business acumen. Yeah, totally. I, I was talking to a friend yesterday about this old business book, old. It's like 10 years old, 12 years old. Oh, that's like, that's that's super old today. It's ancient, <laughs> right? Uh, it was this great book called Smart Cuts, right? And basically the core idea was some of the most successful people in the world ladder hack throughout their careers, right? So they make it to the top or relatively to the top of one career ladder. Let's call it politics. And they say, I'm bored. Uh, and then they hack and jump to another ladder. Let's call it business or writing or whatever it is. And you can actually go a lot further because you have this like, almost this, almost this like make it here, make it anywhere type quality. And so that's exactly what I did in my career. I spent the first decade um, as a tech entrepreneur and had some success by God's grace alone in that, in that, in that field and parlayed that into a career as an author. Cause you're right. When I, when I submitted that first book proposal, I had nothing, I had no email list, no social media following nothing. But I think my first publisher took a bet on me. Cause I'm like, well, if he can make it in this other world, right. As an entrepreneur, he could do it here because let's face it, right. Publishers are the, the the easiest deal for a publisher to sign these days are deals with marketers or entrepreneurs who are essentially marketers, right? Uh, because that's what they're looking for authors to do is to hawk their own books and not just write the book, but sell the book, right? That's what it takes to really be successful in this space right now. And that's why it I make this joke a lot with authors who are asking for marketing help. You know, they're like, oh, okay, the book's written. It's finally to press. Woo. And they take a breath and I'm like, no, 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 no. Like you're actually just getting started. There's a reason like one of the coveted accolades in this field is best selling author, not yes. best written author. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think the, the mistake, man, I wasn't expecting to talk craft day, but this is fun. I never get to talk about this stuff. Uh, I think that, I, I mean, number one, a lot of authors make the mistake of like saying, I'm just going to write the book and somebody else can market it. Like that, that just doesn't happen. Right. But two, I think a lot of people like finish writing the book and then like, okay, now it's time to market it. I think that's a mistake too. The making is the marketing of a book. I, I don't understand that. So you got to explain that. No, like here's what I mean by it. Like you can't write what you want to write 
and then say, okay, how are we going to go sell this? Like mm. both of those questions have to be at the forefront of your mind as you're at the very beginning of a project. Before you decide what you're going to make, you got to be thinking about who this is for, who the target market is, what that pain point is, and how the solution is going to speak so clearly and so explicitly to that pain point or that desired outcome that it's a no-brainer purchase. Right. So like at the front end of a project, I might not have the title nailed down, but I certainly have the felt needs nailed down. Right. I have the desired outcomes nailed down. They're going to be all throughout the marketing copy. I'm thinking about the making and the marketing at the same time as I'm as I'm building up this book. That's amazing. And you did that from the first one that you did? Not for the first one. No, 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 no. I didn't know what the heck I was doing for my first book. No, no. The first book was, this is what Jordan wanted to read. And so this is what Jordan wrote. But over time, I've, you know, we're five, six books deep now. And I'm just learning a lot. And I'm learning that this is the way to write a book with the marketing in mind from the from the get-go, from the very first uh you know, I, I'm a big fan of Ryan Holiday's one sentence description of a product, right? Like you don't start the pro, you don't start the project until you can summarize it in one sentence, right? This this is a book for whom that helps them do what, and that's marketing language, right? And you do that before you actually put pen to paper and start outlining the thing. That is a really hard thing to do. One yeah, sentence, and the place where we do it all the time is, oh, what do you do, and. I get asked that question and my mind is like, it doesn't know how to answer it 95% of the time. I'm like, well, I do 900 things. Which one do you want to know about? Yeah, 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 totally. No, but it's a really good exercise. Like, I think whether it's a book or a piece of software, I challenge people all the time. Try to distill it down to one sense. In, in the book world, uh, I think people try to make books about too many things. I think the best books are about one core idea. Uh, and they're either extremely entertaining or extremely practical, right? Like that's kind of it. Like those, those, those are the best books in the world. It may, may be entertaining. You could also say inspiring. I think, I think that's a different shade of nuance of that, but entertaining, inspiring, or uber, uber practical that can be summarized into one sentence. That makes a lot of sense. And I gravitate to the books that are actually more on one specific topic yeah. personally, because yeah. it's like, oh, I'm trying to improve in flying or writing or my finances. I'm going to go get the best book in that category. I don't want the book that kind of covers all of those things. I want the one. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, but it's a challenge for authors, right? Because you want to say so many things. It's why I told my publisher when I started this journey, I was like, hey, I got 30 books in me. I don't know what they are yet, but I'm confident I got 30 books because I'm committed to this one idea per book strategy. When you think about that like that, it's like, oh yeah, of course you have 30 books, right? Because you want one of these books to be so exceptionally valuable on one topic, right? That you're just like wringing all of the water, all the juice out of that one topic in a one book. I, I tell people all the time, books are not $20 products. They're more like $2,000 products, right? Because unlike a $20 meal, that I consume in 30 minutes after I purchase it, somebody who's buying a book isn't just committing $20, they're committing five to 10 hours of their life to read it and get the value out of it. It's, it's actually a really, really, really high barrier to purchase uh, that product. And so I think you got to pack about $2,000 worth of value just to get people to crack it open. And then of course, share it with their friends, which is the best marketing tool in the world is a book that's worth two grand. That's exactly right, because 
the best written book, it doesn't matter if someone's not going to tell their friend to pick yeah. up this book. That's right. That's right. That's tough. And I can just see being a business person myself, just the way you think as an author is so much like a business and how a business is ran. I think that's so cool. And that makes a lot of sense why a publisher would be like, yeah, this is going to be the guy we're going to take 30 books from. Like he knows exactly, he's speaking the exact same language as us. Right? Well, listen, I mean, this is only by God's grace. I mean, the first 10 years of my career was as a tech founder, raising venture capital, building teams, bringing products to market, right? Um, and again, I, I think I'm doing the exact same thing today. I'm just doing it with the written word rather than with lines of code. You gave a lot of examples in your books from other people throughout history yeah. that have done this before you. Do you read a lot of autobiographies or how do you how do you learn all these stories? Because I love yeah. it. Yeah, I read a ton of autobiographies. Uh, I'm obsessed with greatness. I'm obsessed with the masters and I love learning from them. So I read a lot of biographies. I read a, I read a lot of autobiographies and very diverse, right? Like, I, I yeah, I read some. Um, I read a lot of people who are in my lane. So a lot of biographies and autobiographies of great writers like C.S. Lewis. I just read James Patterson's autobiography, uh, oh. Jerry Seinfeld's autobiography. Both of them were, were really, really great. But also read a lot outside of my lane, right? I read Kobe Bryant's autobiography, right? Uh, I read about Walt Disney. I read about Bezos. I read about Marissa Mayer. I just listened to um, this phenomenal podcast that was essentially a biopic on Taylor Swift because I, I think she was the greatest marketer on earth, right? Uh, and so, yeah, I, I study a lot of these stories. I think there's a lot you can learn from these stories. And who knows, there may be a book coming soon of, from me of uh, biographies of some of my heroes. We'll I would read that and buy it and gift yeah. it. And so you've got <laughs> at least five books from there me. There you go. There you go. And Let's do it. Put it in the pipeline. Just based on the people that you've outlined in your books, yeah. it's the company I want to read from. And it's not all in one lane, like you said. That's what's really cool. And it's not all from one era either. And yeah. some of these are two, three hundred years old or older. Yeah. yeah. Some of my favorite stories. I don't know what it is with me, but uh, 17, 1800, uh, British people are kind of my vibe. Like I, yeah, and Lewis is in the 1900s. I love C.S. Lewis, but I love Arthur Guinness's story of the Guinness Brewing Company. A lot of people don't know that Arthur Guinness was a very, very serious Christian and created the Guinness stout as a means of combating the, the gin craze kind yeah. of a wild story. Uh, another one of my heroes is Hannah Moore, this woman who remained single all of her life, which is kind of unheard of in 1700s London. Uh, she was a phenomenally successful novelist who outsold Jane Austen 10 to 1 uh, in her day. And she's basically uh, credited as abolishing the slave trade. No big deal. Uh, alongside her friend William Wilberforce, who was in Parliament at the time. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I just gravitate to these old... Uh, British stories for whatever reason. Yeah. So, so how does that, I, I feel in your writing yeah. that it's more about you pointing to these other people and God and how they did things versus you saying your own expertise. A hundred percent. I don't think my life's that interesting, right? <laughs> like, I, like I, I really view my writing as curation 
in a way. It's like, hey, let's go find these really interesting stories, curate them for the modern reader so that me and the modern reader don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? Yeah, I I, I just, I, I think there are people who are far wiser than I, and ultimately God is the wisest, he's the source of all wisdom and knowledge. That's why so much of my writing is is based on the Holy Scriptures, on God's word, right? Because I just don't think I have a whole lot to say at age 36, right? I'm just curating the masters for for other people to come along and learn with me. I think Ryan Holiday is really good at this, right? Like I, I really like Ryan a lot. Um, he's just really good at at curating and distilling the wisdom of the ages into um, a more modern dialect, if you mm-hmm. will. Uh, and I, I see myself doing somewhat of the same, not as well as Ryan, but you know. I think that another person I like in the curation space is Shane Parrish of Farnham Street. And yeah. he just, he does the hard work of reading and his team, I'm assuming, the thousands of articles that are out there. So I don't just mindlessly scroll on Twitter looking for whatever article is clickbaity <laughs> because that would be what I would do if I could, right? It's, yeah. it's so yeah. tempting. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people, it, listen, everyone wants to write a book, right? Maybe not everybody, but 70% of your audience wants to write a book. And I think a lot of people are, are, are stuck because like, ah, I don't have an original idea. I don't think you need an original idea. I think you need an original lens at looking through old ideas and maybe a unique way of communicating and reframing those old ideas, but not original ideas, right? Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. I believe that, right? Uh, and, and so I think when you I think when you grasp that um, as somebody who likes to write, somebody who likes to inspire and communicate ideas, it takes a lot of the pressure and the weight off because you could just say, hey, listen, I'm a curator, right? Uh, and I just happen to curate that information uh, via the written word. I like one or love one of the authors you mentioned a lot is C.S. Lewis. And yeah. one of my favorite books by him is, well, I don't know if you should say favorite with this book because it's terrifying, is yeah. the Screw Tape Letters. Yeah. And in there, the head demon is like, oh, all we have to do is just make them not pay attention to the previous generation. And if yeah. you can just block them off from the previous generation, then they're going to keep making the same mistakes they've already made in that century and the century before and the century before. And when I read that, I'm like, oh, no, we are doing <laughs> that exactly right now over and over and over again. Why can't we learn from the past? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I answer that, but I think Lewis was right about that. But yeah, Lewis. So I've studied the life of C.S. Lewis really, really deeply over the years for a lot of different reasons. and. um you know, Lewis studied the previous generations, but he was very careful about what information he consumed. So he very famously never read the newspaper like, ever. He hated the newspaper. He would read the classics, right? So he was very careful not to get in the weeds of the day-to-day information outrage machine that is the daily news cycle. And by the way, he was writing 75 years ago, right? So I can't imagine what he would say today. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Right. Uh, C.S. Lewis talked in that same book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, this fictional demon said that the way he was going to thwart people's effectiveness was by making their world a kingdom of noise. Right. Basically, this kingdom of 
nonstop inputs and information. I talk about this in my, my book, Redeeming Your Time. If we want to redeem our time, it'd be maximally productive and effective in this life. We've got to figure out how to dissent from the kingdom of noise to drown out the inputs that don't matter and limit our attention to the ones that do. And a lot of those are the stories of the greats that have come before us. That's really hard to do. And I think it's Cal Newport who writes a lot in this lane also. I don't think he even has social media. He does not, no. On purpose because yeah. he knows what it does. Yeah. And that's pretty impressive because I think he could sell more books if he was on social media, but he's choosing to actually listen to his own advice and yeah. ignore social media. Yeah, I think Cal would tell you he would sell less books if he was on social media, ironically, right? And interestingly enough, I'm about to follow Cal's lead. I, we're, I'm getting off totally probably by the end of this year. Uh, even though it adds value to me as a personal brand and selling books, uh, it's just not worth it. You know, we, we, we don't think in terms of cost-benefit analyses anymore. Right. We look at a tool and say, is it useful? Is it valuable? That's actually a bad question. Right. The the right, the better question is, is this valuable compared to the cost of using this tool? And the cost of social media and nonstop news services is exorbitant to our attention, to our anxiety, to our psyche, to our ability to hear our own thoughts and be creative. You know, there's a reason why. The shower is where most of us have our most creative ideas because pretty much the last place on earth where we're not staring at a screen for 10 minutes. Wait, right? you don't have a screen in your shower? What's I wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Hold the phone, right? No, but I I, I think Cal's onto something. He's written really um, persuasively about this in digital minimalism, in a world without email, in deep work. And I think he's one of the pioneers in this space. But more and more people are catching on to this and recognizing that um, – the value isn't worth the cost of a lot of these services, and I'm one of them. C.S. Lewis would be like Cal Newport. I would, would, would be willing to bet. He would not be on social media. No now, way. With, with you having an interest in politics, yeah. I don't know about you, but I have to basically avoid all politics or I get sucked in so deep reading. It's yeah. I'm, I'm like in the comments. I'm reading articles. I'm looking people up. I'm watching speeches. I'm on C-SPAN. Like I go yeah. deep. Yeah, it's quicksand, right? Politics is the quicksand that is in every crevice of America, right? Uh, political news. And this is my first vocational love, so it's hard for me to say that. If if 20-year-old Jordan Rayner heard 36-year-old Jordan Rayner saying this, he, would, he wouldn't believe his ears. <laughs> um, I, from the eighth grade until a few years after college, I was certain. I was going to be a political operative until the day I died. And, you know, I, I, I just came to the place. I think there were a couple of things going on. Number one, I, I reached a pretty high level within that world and realized that, number one, it was making me an angry and bitter person. And number two, that oftentimes true cultural change. Let me rephrase that. Most times. True significant cultural change is not legislated top down, almost never. It's almost always bottom up. Culture changes by creating more culture, not legislating hearts and minds, right? So you really want to change the world. 
Go create the best films and the best novels that change people's hearts on a particular topic. That's how you change culture. Legislators are followers, largely not leaders. They're following the heart of the electorate. The real leaders are the people creating culture that's changing the hearts and minds of the electorate that eventually leads to legislative change. I mentioned Hannah Moore before and William Wilberforce. They're the perfect case study of this. William Wilberforce was in the British Parliament in the 1700s. He made it his chief end in life to abolish the slave trade throughout the British Empire. But he quickly figured out he wasn't just going to be able to walk into the British Parliament and introduce a law and abolish the slave trade. So he teamed up with this woman, Hannah Moore, who was a novelist and a poet. who's basically like, hey, listen, you have to change hearts and minds before I can pass this legislation. And so Hannah Moore got super intentional about publishing art and poetry and illustrations in the newspapers that would change people's hearts and minds about slavery. And only once they were able to accomplish that was Wilberforce uh, able to accomplish the great object of his career in abolishing the slave trade. There's a lesson in there for all of us. So they needed both sides, though. They needed a legislator <laughs> and they needed the person that affected the hearts and minds. A hundred percent. It's 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 the ground force and the air raids, right? I mean, the Hannah Moore was doing the groundwork, softening up the ground for the aerial attack, if you will, that was necessary in Parliament from Wilberforce. But I, most historians agree that Wilberforce would never have passed this piece of legislation had it not been for the work that Hannah Moore was doing on the ground for literally decades uh, before that bill was passed. And they were working together. Yeah, 100 percent. They're very, very, very close friends. Is that happening today in politics in some way? It's a really good question. Um, You know, I think the best case study for this um, has been the gay rights movement. Right. I mean, there's a lot of well-documented evidence that uh, political power in Washington and power in Hollywood were working together for years very intentionally to place gay characters in film and TV. Uh, to change hearts and minds. I remember Joe Biden was on, I think it was Meet the Press when he was vice president, uh, saying that Will and Grace did more for gay rights in America than any politician ever could. He was that was that was spot on, right? Because hearts and minds change before laws do, long before laws do. I, I don't know who's really teamed up at the legislative and cultural level today. Uh, but whoever is, is the one we're going to see winning 30 years from now. Yeah, we may not see it now because it, yeah. it's a long game. And yeah, I feel exactly. like most politics that I see today is very short game. It's like this year, this yeah. electoral season. It's And it makes sense, right? I mean, people are fighting for their positions every term. And so they can't worry about 20 years from now because they may not right. be in office in two years, Correct. which is kind of disappointing. Yeah. Um, but, but it's um, a game. It's a yeah. game they have to play. You can't fault them for, for playing the game by the rules in which the, you know, the game is designed. Do you see yourself championing some type of a hearts and minds motion? Yeah. You know, not, not, not one that I see um, a legislative outcome to here. Here's what, Here's what I want to change in people's hearts and minds. I want to see people radically change their perspective about work. You know, I think my parents' generation largely saw work as a meaningless means to an end, right? I go to work to collect a paycheck to to move on to the truly meaningful things in life. My family, 
my church community, whatever it is. Um, and I just think that's a really sad and frankly unbiblical way to view work. Uh, the the Hebrew the Hebrew Bible, the Judeo Christian Bible, says that God Himself works. Pretty radical idea. The only religious text to make that claim. Every other religion says that the gods created human beings to work and serve the gods. Only the God of Christianity says that he himself works to serve us. That's pretty radical. Gives us dignity for work. So that was kind of baby boomer generation painting with a broad brush. But in my experience, Gen X, Gen Z, millennials, we have swung the pendulum in the opposite direction right? Mm-hmm. Work is not a meaningless means to an end. Work is the end. Work is the means by which I prove to the world that I am supreme, that I am special, that I am, my existence is justified. We would never use those words, but that's what we're saying with the way that we use work to posture ourselves within our communities and friend groups and peer groups. And I think that's also a lie. I, I think anyone who's ever attained any significant level of success will admit in their heart of hearts that it's never, ever enough, ever enough. It can never, ever satisfy. And so what I'm trying to change in hearts and minds is recognizing that both of these extremes are wrong, but there is a third way. And the third way is recognizing that work has inherent dignity because God himself works, but recognizing that work, sex, family, whatever, Nothing can provide ultimate worth other than perfect, unconditional love with God. That's it, right? Uh, and, and, and listen, some of your listeners may be on a different path and trying to find that unconditional love and acceptance somewhere else. And great, like I think that's what we're all looking for. I found it in the person of Jesus Christ who came to earth and worked a regular J-O-B for 80% of his adult life before he worked as a preacher. And so, yes, work is dignified. Work is good. It's not the ultimate good, but work is not about me anymore. It's not about my fame. It's not about my fortune. Work is about service to others. And I think when you can get in that headspace of my work, um, is primarily a vehicle for serving and loving my neighbor as myself. That's ironically when you find the utmost joy for yourself, when you're focused on serving others first and foremost in the craft. I've gone through this struggle firsthand. In 2016, I quit my retail career that I had worked in 15 years, and I was kind of the top of that ladder as you called out yeah and i'm like i need a different ladder this one's not giving me any joy and i read all these self-help books read the bible i prayed took long walks did all this stuff trying to find my purpose and i was like my purpose is i want to work as little hours as possible get this passive income so then i can do with my time things i really love yeah totally the wrong way to actually find meaning a lot of people feel like that and it didn't work like that did not work at all And there's this huge movement, the fire movement, and I feel like it's set up a lot like that. It's like, all right, I'm going to get two, three million dollars in a bank account and then live super low below my means and just live off that and not really work. As if work's so bad. Like, why is work so bad? Work is so bad because, I mean, the, the real answer is a theological one. Because we live in a fallen world, right? The story of... This is why I love the biblical narrative so much. It answers these really hard questions, right? The story of scripture, and I talk about this in my new book, The Word Before Work, is that work was once perfect, 
right? God worked Genesis one. And the first thing he told human beings to do was to fill the earth and subdue it, basically create culture and civilization, right? Human beings sinned, work became difficult and arduous, right? But the beautiful narrative of scripture is that one day work will be perfect once again. One of my favorite promises uh, in the Judeo-Christian Bible is Isaiah, um, Isaiah 65, I think it's verse 22, it says that one day God's chosen people will long enjoy the work of their hands and they will not labor in vain. He's talking about heaven, right? A lot of times you know, our American caricature of heaven is, you know, this glorified retirement home in the clouds. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that one day heaven is on earth, right? Belinda Carlisle was right. Ooh, heaven is a place on earth eventually, right? And it's a place where we're long going to enjoy the work of our hands forever. That's a pretty radical promise. So work is difficult today because we're not there yet on that side of redemptive history and God's historical timeline. But I think even then we can find great joy and purpose in our work if we reimagine it not as a means of accumulating fame and fortune that's going to satisfy us because it never will, but as a means of loving our neighbor as ourself. Do you think fame and fortune I mean, me being straightforward, it's a good motivator for me for what I do. Like if I didn't get paid or if people didn't listen, it would be hard to have the motivation to do it each day. Um, I don't think it's a bad motivation. I, I don't. I, I, I think, listen, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't motivated to some degree by those things. But I think if those become the ultimate thing, the thing to where if I didn't have fame, if I didn't have fortune, I wouldn't feel like I had a sense of self. That's crippling, right? I, 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 think, I think every human being is looking for a verdict for their lives. And we look for it in different places. Some of us look to it in our parenting, but I think most of us look to it, look to our work for this verdict to, to, to prove that we are worthy and valuable and accepted, right? And if that's what work is for you, it's not just about paying the bills it's not just about growing your impact, but it's about validating my existence. At some point, you're going to be devastated. And I, I'm speaking from personal experience. I've been through that. There was a season early in my career where if business was great, I was great. And if business was bad, I was a mess, right? Because you got to find the verdict in something that is way more stable, perfectly stable, not shaky like business or economics or macro or whatever, it's got to be perfectly secure. And again, for me, the verdict for my life is in the fact that God says he died for me when I was his enemy. And that's what the Bible says. That's crazy. That's a crazy thing to say. And because of that, I can know that I'm loved on my most productive day and my least productive day, right? I'm good. I'm good to go. Now, I still want to earn income to serve my family, serve my community. But I don't need work to give me something that work was never designed to give me. This sense of self-worth and perfect, secure verdict and love. Does that does that make sense, James? That makes sense. It it my summary of that is we're putting way too much pressure and importance on one part of our life. Yes. And we're so much more than just workers. Yes. We're human beings. 
not yeah, human doings, right? Exactly. And listen, like I, I'm, I'm the work matters guy. I'm the guy. The, the book's called The Work Before Work. I love work because I think God loves work. But like any good thing that God has given us, I think our tendency is to turn that good thing into an ultimate thing. And when it's an ultimate thing, it becomes a soul crushing thing when that thing isn't working. Completely going off the topic of work for a minute. Yeah. Do you think we do the same thing with our spouses and 100%. our kids? hundred like percent. Way too much pressure on what they can do for our life. No doubt. I, I, I think maybe other than work, I think the most common area we see this is in parenting, right? Like I'm happy if my kids are happy. <sighs> I feel successful if my kids graduate high school, summa cum laude, and are successful in college. And again, it's not bad to be motivated by your kids doing well in school. It's a good thing. But if it's an ultimate thing and your kid isn't valedictorian, isn't graduating summa cum laude, then you are a failure. It's not just the circumstances that are bad. You are bad. You are a failure. Again, it's the same exact thing. I'm looking for a verdict for my life. I'm looking for ultimate peace and joy and satisfaction in something that is insecure. And that's a recipe for disaster for you. And oh, by the way, for your kids. Oh, right? yeah. That's, did, yeah. Did you see the show um, Little Fires Everywhere? Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's a scene at the end. One of the main characters played by Reese Witherspoon is this mom who, from the outside looking in, has it all together, right? She is finding her identity and self-worth in the success of her kids. And her eldest or second eldest, I can't remember, her daughter is like the perfect child, quote unquote. Uh, but what mom doesn't know is throughout the TV show, um, that daughter has an abortion and doesn't tell her mom. And her mom finds out at the end of the show and the daughter screaming at her mom and saying, I'm not perfect. And the mom is screaming at the top of her lungs back at her. Yes, you are. Yes, you are trying to will it into existence. Why? Because she, that mom, had made her daughter's success and perfection the source of her success and perfection. She was putting the verdict of her life in something that was insecure. We all do it. Parenting, we use parenting to do it. We use relationships to do it. We use work to do it. And all of these things are what my favorite author, Tim Keller, calls counterfeit gods. Right? We're turning these things into gods, good things. We've turned into ultimate things that can ultimately never satisfy because none of us will be satisfied except for perfect, unconditional, secure love, which I believe is found in Jesus Christ alone. That is so true. And I can imagine, I haven't watched a show, but that mother, and she's not trying to do anything bad. She's trying to do something great. And it's Correct. honorable to love your child and want them to have a better life than you. That's, I think, every parent, I'm not a parent yet, would say that's what they want for their child. But you can also strangle your child by doing that. Yes. Yeah, totally. You should watch this scene. It's like, so the Bible calls this whole idea that we're talking about idolatry, right? It's just like big theological word. And uh, that scene, I think it was in the last episode of Little Fires Everywhere, uh, last episode, not last scene, one of the last episode of that series. It's a great series. That scene, I was like, this is maybe the best picture I've ever seen in film of what idolatry does to people and how it destroys people. It's a really, really great picture. And Reese Witherspoon was like brilliant. And I think she got nominated for an Emmy for the role. It was really great. 
I love how much in your books you talk about your kids. And I think you do a really good job of talking about your whole life in the book. And I think a lot of authors, I read a lot of books, they like segment their life. Like, oh, I'm talking about work. All I'm going to talk about is my work life. I'm not going to talk about my family. I'm not going to talk about my hobbies. I'm not going to talk about my church. I'm not going to talk about these other things. And what they're doing when they do that unknowingly is actually making it really hard for a person to connect with it because we aren't just one thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Right, right, right. We're, we're, we're multifaceted people. It's one thing I appreciate about this trend in corporate America, this whole self movement. I think it's really smart, right? Like bring your whole self to work, your sexuality, your religious beliefs, your family, like all of that gives us a better composite picture of who you are as a person uh, and makes you a better worker. I, I think corporate America is onto something here. I get a little worried about corporations though, because mm -hmm. I hear this again and again. We hire for culture first and then for the work second. Like second, I'm like, okay, well, you can have someone who's an amazing culture fit and your culture fit could be procrastination and not get any work done. And then like nobody's getting any work done. And then it's like, oh, I, I heard someone say once that uh, overcapacity and disengagement look exactly the same to a manager. And so like all these people look like they're over capacity, but really they're all disengaged. So what do you do when you're over capacity? You just hire more people and that could be really dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be, it can be, but yeah, I mean, ideally you find a plus culture fits and a plus talent fits, but in this environment, that's tough to do. Yeah. You, yeah. I think Chick-fil-A does a great job because it's a place people want to work. And if you have a place where people can identify your mission as a, their mission, hiring is never going to be a problem. Correct. Which is why they invest so much in culture. My my friend Dan Turner ran uh, people operations there for about 33 years. Not about exactly 33 years, very specific number. And um, yeah, they just, you know, they spent years investing in communicating what their core values were and what their mission was. And you know, when you see that pay off, not when times are good, but when a pandemic hits and there's a hiring crisis around the world, that's when you see the fruit of all of those investments. And Chick-fil-A seeing it big time right now. And they blew up. The business did. I mean, you drive past a Chick-fil-A and the, they actually had to buy a lot next to the Chick-fil-A in my town to make the parking lot bigger because it was going like a half a mile down the street and blocking traffic. Yeah. It was insane. Crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. They're machine. And listen, they don't do business by the conventional business book. They do some crazy things. Uh, they close Sundays, maybe most famously, right? Uh, they run a very, very, very different business. But they're showing that operating a business in line with God's word and in line with his principles is the best way to build a business, which shouldn't surprise us if you believe that God is the source of all ultimate wisdom in the world. So many people, myself included, I'll just give my own story. I yeah. often wonder when I'm creating a business, making widgets, selling things, making customers happy, is this truly serving God? Or should I go become a pastor? Or should I become a missionary? Or should I do something else that's more impressive as a Christian? And you mentioned it in your book over and over and over again, no, I shouldn't. But was that difficult for you to kind of get to that point? Oh, yeah. I, I grew up feeling the exact same way you do. You have, James. And it wasn't until 
I read the very first pages of my Bible with a fresh lens that my perspective started to change. I saw that before God shows up as a preacher, he shows up as a creator and a worker. The very first verb in the Bible is created, Hmm. right? Before God preached, before he did anything quote unquote spiritual, he made things for the good of others. That's what entrepreneurs do every day. And oh, by the way, the first commission to humankind, you know, a lot of Christian circles, there's a lot of talk about the great commission, basically the the call to evangelize and, and share the message of Jesus with others, which is a great thing, right? But before there was the great commission, there was the first commission to humankind. The very first thing God called human beings to do was to fill the earth and subdue it, right? Again, this call to, this is not just a call to procreation. Right, It's a call to cultural creation to take that Garden of Eden and turn it into a garden city, right? to a, to a, to a civilization. right? And if we understand that, and if you look throughout Scripture, that, that first commission is never, ever, ever, ever retracted by God, ever, hmm. right? Then how could the work that I do as an entrepreneur or an author or a marketer or a green bean salesman, I don't know, whatever, how could that not be in line with God's will? That's filling the earth. It's subduing the earth. It is, as Jesus said, loving my neighbor as myself, right? I think we make things way too complicated and feel like our work has to be these super spiritual things. Here's the deal. At the end of the day, the Christian teaching is that God is always with us. And if God is always with us as I'm making a widget, as I'm designing a website, as I'm writing a book, then that work is spiritual because God is with me as I'm doing it, right? And so I just see no biblical evidence for this idea that we're all supposed to be pastors and missionaries. And again, I mean, I think maybe maybe the best case in point uh, outside of Genesis 1 is the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, whose ultimate purpose was to literally save the world, uh, spent 80% of his adult life hammering nails as a carpenter, right? Like if if that doesn't remind us of the God-given dignity of regular J-O-B jobs, like I I don't don't know what does, but it took me a long time to get there, James, a long time. And it's why I'm so passionate about championing that message today. Do you think it, like in the screw tape letters, it's these these demons that are making us sick think that our work isn't holy, it's not good enough, we need to throw it all away and start over at something we're not going to be good at on day one. And like, like, is that, could that be part of it? Yeah, totally. Listen, if, if, you know, it's interesting when you, when you, when you look in scripture at how the early church exploded, right? Because Christianity was a phenomenon, phenomenon those first few centuries, how quickly Christianity grew throughout the world. Guess what? Didn't go through pastors who were paid by the church. It didn't go through, grow through, quote unquote, full-time missionaries. There's a great book called Evangelism in the Early Church that makes it crystal clear. The early church grew through mere Christians, working as entrepreneurs, and I don't know if they had baristas back in the you know second, third century, but it was entrepreneurs and baristas and soldiers and tax collectors. That's how the church grew. And so- If you accept that premise, and there's lots of historical evidence to support that, then of course demons 
would try, try to th- try to convince us that that work doesn't matter to God, because that's precisely how God does his work throughout this world, primarily through the work of mere Christians. Does he use pastors and missionaries? Of course he does. And I'm a huge fan of my pastor and the missionaries that my wife and I support, but he also works in this world through you and me doing this podcast. Yeah, I love that. That's really helpful to me. One thing I was really impressed with in your book, Redeeming Your Time, was your focus as a family on a day of rest. Yeah. And it's something I've struggled with, and I've been legalistic about it to where it's like, on Sundays, I came up with a new name for it. It was called Screenless Sundays. And I'm like, (laughs) we're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. We're not going to check our phones except one time at 9 a.m., one time at noon. Like we had all these rules. Do you think it really worked? <laughs> it Probably <didn't>. not. <laughs> it didn't. Probably not so much, right? But, uh, we're inspired to find an easier way. And I love how you outlined it. And it's just such a nice, loving way to, it's just you, it sounds like you just enjoy the day. Oh my gosh. That's exactly it. This ancient idea of Sabbath right? is this idea of one day off, 24 hours, no productive labor at all. It was, it was a gift that God gave to the Israelites after 400 years of slavery. So they're coming out of Egypt and he's saying, Hey, um, remember your oppressor, Pharaoh, who didn't give you a day off for 400 years. I'm giving you this day of rest. Um, one day out of seven, it's remarkable gift from the God of the Bible. And over time, going back to the idea of idolatry, idolatry, uh, the Israelites took this good gift and turned it into this ultimate thing. And they, they put all these rules and regulations around Sabbath and all the things There were like 1500 <laughs> regulations of what you could and could not do on Sabbath. They like made a mess of it. And Jesus comes onto the scene. It was like, guys, you, you missed the whole thing, right? He says in, I think it's Mark chapter two. He says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He, he's reminding them the Sabbath is a gift, not a regulation, not a life-sucking chore. And growing up, I thought of it as a life-sucking chore. And today it's the most life-giving thing that my family and I do. And you're right, James, the difference is, I guess, I guess technically we do have some rules kind of sort of that we hold pretty loosely. What if we call them rituals instead of rules? Rituals. Yeah, there you go. No, we don't do anything that we feel like we have to do. We only do things we feel like we get to do. Right. So I have to do the dishes. So I don't do them on Sundays. I have to do laundry. I don't do laundry on Sundays. I have to make the kids lunch for Monday. I don't do it until Sabbath ends after Sunday dinner. Right. Sabbath is an island of get to and a sea of have to. Right. So it's the day where we spend more time in God's word because we get to and there's nothing pressuring us to finish. It's a day where my kids get to watch a full length movie. That's the only day of the week where they get to watch a full length movie and have a latte. Yes, I give my children lattes. Don't judge me. Right. Uh, It's a day where I don't read books that I'm using to research the next book that I have to read. There are days where I read Jerry Seinfeld's autobiography just because I want to and I get to do it or whatever that book is at the time, right? Uh, It's this day to just enjoy the good gifts God has given me without striving for more. And it's a day to remember that I am a child of God whose verdict has been secured, who's been adopted into God's eternal family through his 
love through nothing that I've done. And because of that, I have value and worth even when I'm not being productive for 24 hours. That's a pretty radical thing to know that like the world tells me I have to hustle, hustle, hustle and keep building, building, building. Sabbath is my day to resist that and to say, no, 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 no. Like, yeah, maybe I could get more done if I worked one more day a week, but I have value and worth simply by being and existing and not producing. That's the Sabbath is for us. It's so good. And it, that's not enough for you. And then um, I'm going to make this last point and then I'll, I'll let you kind of tell us where we can learn more about what you've got going on before we wrap up. But if that wasn't enough, the scientific evidence looking oh at gosh. the Seventh-day Adventists and their lifespan, I think it was 10 years longer lifespan when they gave up 10 years worth of Sundays. So, okay, you give up the Sunday, but Monday through Saturday gets more productive. So you get more work done in six days, and then you yes. actually get 10 more years of six days of productivity. Yes. If you want any reason, that should be enough. And then there's all these other benefits. <laughs> and I talk about this in Redeeming Your Time. There's actually a decent amount of scientific literature stacking up about how Sabbath makes us more productive for towards our goals. It's wild. Again, Chick-fil-A's case in point here, right? I mean, it, it is um, when Chick-fil-A started, mall landlords refused to give them leases because they couldn't imagine how Chick-fil-A could outperform their other tenants only being open six days a week. We all, we all know the rest of that story, right? Mall landlords would kill to have Chick-fil-A in their malls today because they crush their competitors in six days a week. Why? Because Sabbath makes us more productive the rest of the week. So it appears, it appears that I'm working less and, and I'm less productive. But the irony of it is, I think through God's grace alone, I'm more productive because I take that day off once a week, a true day off. And how great is it that it's a day that you can spend with your family exactly. and you can love on them and you can just kind of follow their passions. And especially with young kids at home, it can just be a day where they can explore their curiosities too. It's a beautiful day. It's a, it's a beautiful gift. Yeah. This is great. I'm really excited to hear that you've got a few more books on the way and I can't wait to read them and get you back on the show because we only just scratched the surface of the insights that I've gotten reading your books. And I'm just grateful you came on the chat. But if someone's listening to this and they're like, hey, I want to learn more about this, where should they go? What should they do? And then what, do you, what else you got going on? Yeah, so you can find lots of free resources and links to all the books at my website, jordanrainer.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-R-A-Y-N-O-R.com. We've talked about my book, Redeem Your Time. We've talked about my book, The Word Before Work. Links to both of those and everything else is right there. And the first book I read was called To Create, which is another yeah. really good one. If you're listening yeah. to this and you go, I feel like I'm not creating, read that book and you may find you are, and you may be inspired to do something different if you aren't. So there you go. pretty I neat. Like it. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks James for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the James Quandall Show. The show notes for this episode and other goodies can be found at quandall.com. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the next episode. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. See you next time.